Hi, I'm Bob Bushansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Today being the fifth Friday of October is also the day that we have with us Phil Worf, Professor of Political Science at Mendocino College. On the fifth Friday, we usually talk about the topics of the day. We have come up with 13 different things. We might not get to all of them, or some of them may lead us to other areas to talk about. Our time is limited. So without further ado, Phil Worf will now join us. Hi, Phil. Hi, good morning, Bob. Nice to be with you, as always. Uh, and good to have you with us today. So uh, anything new since yesterday that would might add to the 13 items we may not all get to? Well, I think 13 is, is plenty, maybe more, uh, more than enough. But, well, I mean, we know that uh, Biden uh, took off today for his uh, multi-state international trip. Uh, and I know that uh, he was hoping to get something done on this uh, the uh, reconciliation bill before he you know, split town. But it looks like, uh, of course, that didn't happen. And who knows what uh, is going to happen while he's out of town. Uh, but uh, that, that's the big thing I, I saw this morning. And, um, you know, he's going to be he's going to be traveling around for in a lot of places for a little while. So uh, be lots of uh, probably be lots of stuff to report on that. Yeah, it's interesting because um, uh, some members of Congress wanted to vote on the infrastructure bill, which is a separate bill that's a little over a trillion dollars. But as the head of the Progressive Caucus said on air this morning, I was listening to a piece of the news earlier. Uh, we're not going to vote on that because we don't trust the Senate. Uh, which means that, oh, yeah, you know, we'll vote for it. You just vote for that other thing first, for the reconciliation bill, and then we'll do uh, uh, that other bill. And what she said was, uh-uh, uh, uh, let's do this bill and the other bill at the same time, and then we'll believe that both will be voted on. Now that's, uh, first of all, it's pretty savvy to think that, and it's also pretty honest to lay that right up front. Well, I think that's true, and uh, we know this is coming from the the House uh, Progressive Caucus, which, you know, has historically been a pretty uh, it's been a fairly large caucus, but that has all included not just progressives but a number of other uh, more moderate uh, members. And so, I think the new leadership, uh, Prima Jayapal, uh, who is uh, in charge of this uh, the Progressive Caucus now, I think they're putting a little more. Uh, you know, restrictions on members in terms of, um, you know, making them sort of vote in line and that kind of thing. And she has about 50 members who basically said, look, we're not going to vote on the infrastructure bill or the, or the reconciliation bill until um, the infrastructure bill, something happens there. We want to vote them at the same time. And you're exactly right. They think that, hey, we're going to get this, they're going to get this reconciliation bill. And then all of a sudden there'll be some defections on the, uh, in the infrastructure bill in the Senate, uh, maybe even, maybe even some Democrats, right? Yeah. Then, uh, you know, then, then it will fall apart. So I think it's pretty savvy, like you said. And, you know, this is, um, you know the the republic or the the house progressive caucus democrats really have not been um you know as tough in the past and i think they're trying to to get that way and you have 50 members who are going to vote in a block well you have some power in the house not because you can make things happen but because you can keep things from happening and usually that um, is just as important so uh, really really interesting dynamics here and of course that's why you know pelosi and and those guys are huddling to figure out how this is going to pan out let me uh, let me update you on the number in the uh, 
Progressive Caucus, uh, there were 96 members. Uh, that's about 45% of the total Democrats in the House. That's a substantial number of them. It's a big number, yeah. Um, now she has about, uh, they have about fifty that are really that are willing to do this and vote against the reconciliation bill if they don't get the vote on the infrastructure bill. So, um, yeah, it's about half of them, but that's enough. And also, like I said, I think you know historically there's been uh, there hasn't really been you know much ideological rigidity or consistency, uh, you know, throughout the entire Progressive Caucus, and I think the effort is to, even if that group becomes smaller, it'll be better and more influential if it can vote as a block, and I think that's where they're trying to go. One of your top priorities to talk about today was Striketober and the worker shortage that continues even after all the employment insurance and other labor subsidies have stopped. Uh, what about that is of interest to you? Well, I think it's interesting because um, there's this, you know, the reporting and uh, the the perception or the you know assertion out there that um, there's a labor shortage and it's difficult for uh, businesses to find employees and that kind of thing. And I assume that's true in, in you know some instances. But really, if you look at the data, you know, it's not true. I mean, the unemployment rate is uh, was pretty flat. You know, fell a little bit in September, but we're looking at an unemployment rate that's like under five percent. That's pretty strong employment. Um, you know, the amount of uh, people, um, you know, the the percentage of the public sort of in in the job market looking for a job basically hasn't changed uh, and slightly better than it was in. Um, or I'm sorry, just only slightly lower than it was right before COVID. So there's no indication that there, there's a big change there. And like you said, you got the the, che- the $1,400 checks are not coming out anymore. The enhanced employment benefits they're not happening uh, anymore and haven't been happening for a while in some states. And so, you know what's what's happening here. And I think um, part of it is reflected in this um, this. this activism of unions and various you know kinds of businesses around the the country reflecting that and basically it's just that you know um, there's this long-term trend of working harder for um, the same or less and um, you know there's only so long that can happen I think business is really gonna have to uh, pony up a little bit more to attract those uh, workers and I think the the, the various uh, you know the the strength of workers now allows them to take you know work actions like um, strikes and you know vote, threatening strikes and all that and you see it in a whole wide range of businesses right like John Deere and Kellogg's and you know so forth and so um, you know maybe this maybe this is good for uh, the labor movement I think they have they've had some victories um, I guess the Hollywood crews and that kind of stuff so you know labor is um, has been in decline for a long time in the US but if you look at the big things that um, you know the benefits people get a live um, you know health benefits fighting for a living wage 40-hour week I mean these are all things that unions delivered organized labor and I think that um, you know that's been beaten down and beaten down and beaten down. The Supreme Court has, has made him weaker and weaker and weaker. And, uh, you know, it's good. Me as a former union guy, or current union member and a former union um, guy, um, you know, I think this, uh, this is very positive. And uh, we'll, you know, but we don't, and we don't know how all this is going to, um, you know, how all these will, will um, you know, uh, end up. But I think it's, uh, it's uh, sort of flexing workers' muscle a little bit. And I think that's a positive thing. Do you happen to know offhand what the federal minimum wage uh, pay is right now? Um, yeah, I think it's seven twenty-five an hour. Yeah, so, and uh, very. It's been that way very, for uh, generous. Yeah, been that way for how long? Uh, th- 20, 30 years? 2009? 
Well, yeah, 10. Okay, so it's been uh, a little over 11 years, but it hasn't moved much, and inflation has increased. Uh, and if you're a worker, so uh, that's $285 a week. What the hell can you buy for that? Can you pay rent for that? Can you feed your family with that? That's absurd. That's not a living wage. It's not. I mean, maybe if you lived in some place, um, you know, in the in the rural South where the cost of living is very low, uh, per, you know, you might be able to scrape by on that. But I mean, it's really um, it seems impossible that anybody could. And it, unfortunately, a lot of states have gone to you know a higher uh, minimum wage number. California certainly has, and uh, fifteen dollars is one of the things that the un- uh, per hour. One of the things the unions are working for too. But you know, it's just um, you know it's unfortunate that that there can't be any sort of movement on the minimum wage and the republicans are basically against that um, and if you look at the minimum wage not only is it hasn't you know increased in 11 years if you look at it relative to as a proportion of uh you know income relative to you know what it was 20 30 40 years ago it's worth much less and then so the the minimum wage is decreasing effectively over time as you say because of inflation and so forth and it's really it's really scandalous um, in fact, so we just have to, um, you know, so those who want better wages have to focus on the state level, and that's what's been happening. But it sure would be nice to have a nice bump up at the federal level, too, because a lot of states just aren't going to go higher than that. Well, one of the areas, uh, or two of the areas, where uh, people are being paid minimum wage uh, is food service and uh, uh storekeepers or shopkeepers or people who work in stores and deal with customers those are two of the higher risk uh, 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 jobs right now so the people are taking more risk for less pay and Paul Krugman wrote a, a column his op-ed column uh, in the New York Times and what he says is since the pandemic start americans seem to be rethinking their lives and he calls his column the revolt of the american worker yeah i mean i've seen a number of different uh, explanations for why there's this um, shortage um, you know and i i think that uh, you know krugman is right about that um, you know is it a, mis- a mismatch of who's looking for jobs and what jobs are available um, have people moved around are they he- um, you know hesitant because of covid i think that's a big one um, but right i mean people have sort of reevaluated um, you know what's what's important to me and um, you know how uh, you know what uh, what kind of uh, jobs are available? What do I want to do with my life? And, uh, you know, I've had a chance to sort of reevaluate and take stock and determine what's important. And I think that, um, you know, there, that's really happening in a, in a lot of places. So I think Krugman is right. Yeah. And so uh, things are changing. Um, and we don't know how quickly or how slowly they'll continue to change, but they are probably going to change. Um, just look at where we're at. We're into this uh, uh, pandemic for over a year and a half, and people are getting tired, angry, frustrated. Uh, it's really a difficult life to live these days, and uh, you can see that people have to be rethinking things. Do they want to go back to the same old, same old? And then again, what is the same old, same old? Will we ever get that back again? And the next question is, do we want to? <laughs> do we want to get it back? To the same old, same old. 
Well, I mean, uh, you know, people, there, there's been a decline of industry in the United States for a long time, um, and we are becoming a service, you know, economy, and as you say, those kind of jobs are the, the jobs that are most vulnerable to, to COVID and, and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, part of what's happened is that um, not just this longer-term trend, but particularly since, um, you know, the, the COVID um, outbreak, you're having, you know, certain uh, people who are working longer and longer and longer hours, um, for the same, you know, uh, pay or what have you, instead of uh, recognition of all the uh, additional effort they're putting in and the, the challenge and the potential risk and all that. And so I think when you look at it as a potential employee and you see that um, that's not something that's being prioritized, uh, then it does make you question, uh, do I want to go back to that? And, uh, boy, a bigger question about the U.S. economy and where it's headed and what it's going to look like, well, I think that, that that's a topic for another show. Yeah, but what we could do, talk about a little bit today is why we have these supply shortages. And uh, I want to talk about... JIT, just-in-time inventory. I think that was started by Toyota uh, 40 or more years ago. And instead of keeping warehouses full of parts and transfer them over when they're needed to uh, to the production line, uh, they got the idea that with their suppliers in factories and warehouses right near their uh, their car manufacturing plant, they could have them bring over trailers worth of parts just as they were needed, just in time for the production line. And as a result, uh, there isn't surplus uh, equipment available to be able to make whatever the manufactured item is, number one. Number two, we have moved most of our manufacturing, as you just mentioned, overseas. So the supply lines are a lot longer, especially here in the United States. So that's why off of Long Beach and the port of Los Angeles, we have hundreds of ships that have been uh, stacked up. Uh, the port can't do it. But I want to point out a very important thing right here. Just in time and the problems it's creating now is a private industry problem. It is not a governmental problem. The government didn't create just in time. But what Joe Biden said was he's going to put uh, people, uh, troops, I guess, uh, uh, the National Guard into helping so that the port uh, in Los Angeles can work 24 hours a day to unclog the system that was created by private industry. Um, I just think that that's important for people to understand. It's not the government that did it. Right, it's not the government. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, as always, there are a lot of conspiracy theories and ideas floating around Facebook. And one of them is that, you know, um, this would be this is a opportunity for a takeover by the government and the other one there's another one that says that this is a result of you know trump's tough policy on china and um, that's why they're stuck off off uh, the coast because they can't bring stuff in because there's some of these from some of these companies that's been targeted by trump's tough trade policy um, that's not true and so um, you know those uh, those big hundred ships um, you know that's what's happening I think you're right about the just-in-time inventory thing but you know um, to be to be fair um, you have the COVID breakout you have this big crash in demand 
right? And then, um, you know, as things are sort of reopening again, you have this big spike in demand, and so it's kind of a whipsaw for the uh, supply chain, right? And so, um, you know, it's just, and you know, you get workers that leave the economy and things shut down and all that, and then you have to ramp it back up again. So I think there are some reasonable explanations um, for, you know, why this is happening. But, you know, to me, what, what concerns me is that, say, you have... 60 ships off the coast in, in L.A. and Long Beach, and then you have 100 ships off the coast in L.A. and Long Beach, and at some point you, you have to move them through or else, you know, it just backs up forever. And so I think that Biden is right that something has to, has to happen. What exactly that looks like, um, you know, I don't know, but it's, uh, it, it's got to be dealt with. I mean, 40% of all the stuff in the U.S. comes through um, Long Beach and L.A. ports, and if you, if you can't get the you know the backup solved there well you've got a problem and you know it's like anything else if you if you can't uh you know if you've got things constantly coming in or coming at you and you can't clear what's already um there then it's just going to stack up and create a bigger and bigger and bigger problem and um you know boy how how would that um you know what would that look like i, I don't know but it, it looks pretty scary so uh, i think you know if, whether it's whether you want to think of it as a government takeover or not there has to be some kind of really um, significant action here and, and maybe biden has a has a good plan i don't know well we'll, we'll see with that in the meantime, I'd like to pivot to another a point that you wanted to talk about, and that was the House January 6th committee and their pursuit of uh, Bannon. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really uh, have a lot to say here, but I think it's really important um, with the January 6th committee, and of course you, you know that the whole idea was to have this bipartisan committee that would really investigate January 6th, and of course uh, that all fell apart um, before it even, before it fell apart immediately, and um, you know, so it's really just a, a group of uh, Democrats, you have a couple of Republicans um, who uh, you know, were uh, raised appropriate alarm about uh, Trump's behavior on January 6th, and so, you know, of course the the problem is then that uh, people in Trump's orbit and so forth, they're just not uh, participating and not, uh, you know, doing what they should in terms of, um, you know, providing the committee information that it wants. And so they had to subpoena Bannon, meaning that, you know, um, get the course to try to enforce their order for him to, their subpoena for him to show up and provide information. And, um, we talked about this a little bit, you know, very briefly, but, you know, um, this is a problem, right? Because, you know, because what happens if this investigation is not resolved and say that the, the, um, the House, the Democrats lose the House next time, um, and let's say that, or maybe Trump is reelected if they do keep, you know, the House in 2022, 20, uh, meaning the Democrats, maybe Trump comes back in 2024, who knows? And so I think they're just going to try to run out the clock. I mean, this is one of the things, the standard, you know, standard operating procedure with these kind of investigations and um i don't you know it's really in um, attorney general garland's you know on his desk now to see what they're going to do in terms of trying to enforce the subpoena but um seems to me like it, there's really got to be some tough action or else um, you're going to have um you know not just bannon but everyone um sort of thumbing their nose at the committee even if they get some uh, even if they have a document that legally requires them to do so uh, because you know they can uh, they can run out the string, and that's unfortunate. Uh, I think that um, there needs to be uh, you know they, the committee should have more power than that. Um, but 
you know, if uh, if they're able, if Bannon's able to resist and they're able to keep this thing tied up in court until Democrats no longer have the ability to have this committee, well, then it's a, it's a win. And it's really, to me, I'm it's it's still just mind-boggling that you have, you know, lots of House Republicans voting against, um, you know, uh, the certification of the election results. And, you know, no, none of them interested in participating in an investigation of this uh, insurrection. And um, it's really it's really kind of shocking how um, how far how reactionary the Republican Party has has become. And I don't. Uh, uh, and so this is this is a good example of that is Bannon sort of uh, foot dragging. Um, and just one more one more thing. He also claim, thinks that uh, executive privilege is going to save him because uh, he was part of the uh, Trump White House. But of course, we know that's nonsense because uh, he's no longer. Uh, you know, these things didn't happen when he was in the White House, and uh, Trump's no longer there, so he can't be covered by executive privilege. So um, is he going to have to? To fork it over, is he going to have to to give in? Is he going to have to deliver the goods? I don't know, Bob. We'll see what the courts say. Uh, I think Garland's going to have to go after him, though. Don't you? Yeah, but here's the big problem. Uh, so there are two kinds of uh, uh, of uh, contempt of Congress. One is a civil contempt complaint, and the other is a criminal complaint. And this is the criminal complaint. So you would think, oh well, something's going to happen soon. No, it takes a while. It's not something that happens tomorrow. So your thought process just a moment or two ago about running out the clock, either way, whether it be a civil or a criminal uh, 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 contempt of Congress, it's going to take a while. It's not going to go through courts very quickly. Now, of course, the Department of Justice can ask for adjudication at the various levels, a fast one. And so maybe that'll happen, but I wouldn't hold my breath. There was an editorial in St. Louis today, uh, and it's the headline is, Bannon, Bannon subpoena defiance is illegal, yet the, quote, law and order party, unquote, defends it. So here are the Republicans who used to be as apple pie, I mean, as American as apple pie. And today, as you pointed out a moment ago, these are absolute extremists who don't care about the rule of law. They're not willing to live under the rule of law, and they're following a cult leader. This is almost unbelievable. I'm worried. This is the big worry I have going into the next couple of years. We're on a knife's edge. On one side, we could go into uh, a totalitarian uh, country. On the other hand, we could retain our democracy. And I, I won't make any prognostication as to what will happen. These uh, uh, investigations are part of it. The information that they, that they unearth is a part of it. But there could be other insurrections. Uh, we just don't know. Well, there could be, and I think that um, you know all this starts, Bob, with the with the big lie, right? The lie that uh, Trump somehow won the or that the election was stolen from Trump, right? Yes. Um, you know, and 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 he, and he has to say this, right? He's humiliated by the by election loss. His supporters really want to believe it, and uh, Fox News gives him the echo chamber um, that he needs. But you know, where does this all lead? And you know, it leads to sort of um, a declining trust in our you know institutions uh, a complete disregard for facts um, kind of dysfunction in terms of the legislative process 
you know, democratic norms um, sort of eroded, all this stuff, right? And so um, when that happens, then you get, a, you know, uh, one party, um, the Republicans in this case, get to uh, claim that they've won elections they've lost, and um, there's this attack on election integrity and that kind of thing. And so when people no longer have confidence in, you know, American democracy, you know, at, at worst, um, this decline in commitment to democratic norms results in political violence. And I think that, you know, we we saw that January 6th, um, you know, in, in, a, uh, in a limited way. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, if you continue to have this sort of irresponsible building up of this, you know, frankly, a, a lie, um, what's going to happen? Um, you know, there was the, the public meeting, right, last week, or uh, I guess last week with uh, Charlie Kirk, who's a Republican operative, and uh, he was having this little, um, you know, meeting with some Republican uh, voters and activists, and, you know, one of the guys stands up and goes, you know, when, when do we get to break out the guns and kill these people, right, <laughs> who stole the election from us and so forth, and this is extremely dangerous, right, and I, I'm with you, Bob, I don't know where this is all going to go, but uh, at some point, unless, you know, important actors like Fox News, let's say, or uh, responsible politicians, political leaders put a, you know, squelch this, um, I think, you know, the January 6th is only the tip of the iceberg, and that's really, that's really scary to me. And uh, I know you mentioned the, the Todd, uh, Christy Todd Whitman uh, editorial in the, in the New York Times, um, and I, where, where she, where she says, you know, look, um, if, if we're going to, uh, it, she says rational Republicans want to um, beat this stuff back. We might even have to vote for Democrats, right? And so I think this is how um, significant the, the the threat is, even for you know traditional, more moderate Republicans. Well, time is just zipping on by. So what I would like to do is reintroduce you, Phil. My guest today, first of all, you're listening to Politics, a Love Story. And my guest today is... Uh, political science professor Phil Worf. He is at Mendocino College, and he comes on, uh, and sometimes in between, but on every fifth Friday, and there are usually four or so during the course of a year. The next one is at the end of December, and uh, we'll have to talk about whether we're going to pre-record that show or not. But in any event, you're listening to Politics, A Love Story. I'm Bob Bashansky, and this is Phil Worf a political science professor at Mendocino College, who is our guest today. Now, speaking of the Christy Todd Whitman uh, editorial, what she said is, uh, we are Republicans. There's only one way to save our party from pro-Trump extremists, and that's to vote for Democrats. I lived in New Jersey when she was the governor. Uh, and she was in George W. She headed George W. Bush's EPA, if I'm not mistaken. So. She's definitely a Republican. And here's the thing that I'm, I have in the back of my mind. You get more and more Republicans of note. Uh, well, first of all, we have Bill Kristol, who uh, is uh, a, no, a never-Trumper. And then we have the Lincoln Project, a bunch of former Republican consultants. And they're all working against Trump and the, the people that are following him. Uh, is that going to be enough to sway the election? Or are the avid, uh, well, let's, I don't want to start any ad hominem thing, but the people who are following Trump blindly, are they going to prevail? Are the Democrats going to be apathetic and not come out? Uh, 
these are lots of questions that some of them we may have answered on Tuesday. Uh, is Youngkin going to become the next governor of Virginia, or will Ter uh, Terry McAuliffe prevail? So that might give us an indication moving forward. Mm -hmm. Well, um, let me just say, Bob, as a former um, resident of the state of Virginia, uh, it's really changed fairly dramatically. Um, you know, I, I moved there in the 1990s and moved out in the 2000s. Um, but, you know, it used to be a heavily, a pretty reliably Republican state at the you know state level, and um, they haven't actually elected a Republican governor since, I think, 1999 now. Um, but uh, Youngkin is really sort of, uh, the Republican candidate is really... Um, been able to make hay out of um, this sort of uh, this conflict with school boards about um, you know this nonsense about critical race theory or masking or all that kind of stuff. So he's making a lot of hay about this. I think he's going to have big turnout of Republicans. I think there's no question about that. So will Democrats turn out enough? You know, these are big questions. I've seen them. I've seen the polls. I took a look, and you know, the, what I've seen the last week or so is just you know, basically a dead tie. And so it really is going to be about turnout, um, who turns out, how much they turn out. Um, and, uh, you know, the initial initial early voting uh, trends suggest that uh, McAuliffe is probably going to, uh, that he's got the advantage right now, but, you know, we don't know if that's going to hold forever. It's not going to be not determinative, right? But, you know, in terms of uh, what uh, Christy Ty Whitman says, you know, she first starts out talking about, let's have a, you know, we want a third party. Well, and then she, and then she recognizes that that's probably not going to happen, or if it does happen, it's not going to be effective. And that's just the bottom line, Bob. We have a two-party system. So, you know, Republicans will stay in business no matter what happens to them, because, um, you know, if you don't like what the Democrats are up to, you don't have any choices. Uh, and so their real path, meaning these uh, more moderate Republicans, is to take back the Republican Party. Um, and, you know, I guess the way you do that is to um, for them to lose elections. And uh, so the, the momentum of this Trump um, movement to, to kind of, um, you know, fizzle out, uh, I think you know, um, I, it's there. She argues, you know, if you have just a few percentage points of Republicans shifting to vote for uh, Democrats, um, that could make all the difference. And once that happens, you can shake up this whole thing. Uh, I think it's a bit optimistic, but um, but she's right about one thing: elections are so close to the United States that um, just a few. You know, a, a small percentage, at least in statewide or national races, a small percentage flip is really all you need. So maybe, um, you know, yes, Bob, I think she was um, she was on George W. Bush's team and all that. But I think as a, and you're from New Jersey, maybe you, I'm sure you know better than I do, but my impression is that, um, you know, she was more moderate and certainly more moderate than most Republicans now. So You're correct. Uh, you know, she's taking a big, a big risk coming out and making this, uh, you know, statement in the or op-ed in the new york times well in, unless she's looking for uh, another elected office she's not taking any kind of a risk so they ostracize her big deal she's not running she's got enough money uh, but one thing i wanted to get back to you were a pollster uh, you worked for a polling organization you understand what that's all about and there's something that i've told you before but i've seen a, a poll that says youngkin is up by eight points in virginia well, I've told you this before. I'm going to tell our audience again because I've said it. I don't believe any poll uh, that, or I won't listen to any poll that I don't believe. 
I think they're wrong. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, I mean, let's let's start with uh, the recognition that the polling is an, uh, not an exact science. I mean, you have um, you have to you know recognize that there's a margin of error, and uh, a lot of things go into you know how how good your poll is. Uh, primarily, you know how how good is your sample? Um, who, who are you talking to? And you know this is a big challenge for pollsters now because there's uh, you know it used to be telephone based and of course now lots of people don't have telephones or you know home phones and how do you reach them and you know you go use the internet and what kinds of people have the internet and who don't and all that so it's a big challenge I think that's part of what is happening with um, polling right now but you know if you look at um, the site uh, Real Clear Politics and they look at different polls and they sort of handicap them based on how good they think they are. And um, that's one way to, to look at it. But, I mean, polls aren't perfect. But I think if you look at the, the history of polling, it's, it's pretty good. And we're in kind of a, you know, a shift right now. But um, I think that, sure, not all polls are accurate. Some, you know, and it depends on how you, how you ask the question and all that kind of stuff, a whole, you know, whole bunch of different variables that, that matter. But I think in polls that are done well, and legitimately, and they're not, you know, intentionally biased one way or the other. I think you can get good results that that are reliable and that can tell you about what's likely to occur. Um, so, so I I disagree strongly and fundamentally, Bob, with your view about uh, polls. And uh, but I do recognize that there are some there are some challenges, and there's always polls that are off base. And you have to, you know, as a consumer, you have to bear in mind what those, um, you know, the, those potential impacts or influences are. So uh, I, I encourage you to, to do that instead of just dismissing them out of hand. Well, <laughs> we will have to uh, agree to disagree, but I'll explain one thing to you. Uh, and you know what they say, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And my little bit of knowledge is dangerous for polling organizations. I will not respond to a poll. First of all, who is the polling organization? Who are they working for? Is my first question. Is this a push pool, a push poll or a pull poll? And how are the questions stacked? Uh, to elicit certain answers or not. So as a result, I'm not taking any chances. I'm just not going to answer any polls because I don't really believe uh, that they're as accurate as you think they are. And we've seen in past uh, elections that they were way off uh, in many respects, not all. Uh, an outfit like Pew, Pew Research, they are pretty good in what they do. But um, the uh, who is the, the, the first big polling organization um, Gallup? Yes. Gallup, you mean? Yes, they have been so far off that uh, they're not taken as seriously as they used to be. Well, I mean, there are there are challenges, but Bob, you're the problem, okay? Because <laughs> because if they can't reach, um, you know, citizens like you and, and um, different kinds of citizens, you know, with a, a good representative sample, well, then you can't do quality surveys, and so, um, and I and I, you know, I'm with you. I don't want to answer them either, but um, and you have to be, and you look, you know, like I said, as a consumer, you have to look at who did the poll, what. What's their background? You know, and they're they're polls polling companies that are that are you know Democratic and some that are Republican, and you just have to keep that in mind. And um, you know, if you dig down into them, you can figure out uh, maybe what the differences are. But yes, 
how you ask the question, who you talk to, all these different things, um, you know, they, they matter. But I think uh, we, can, we have to disagree on this one. I think polls are valuable. Look, when, when they were off base in the, the Trump-Clinton um, election in 2016, yeah, they were off by, you know, their, their assumptions were wrong. Their, their, you know, their models might have been wrong. Their ability to get talk to you know get good sampling was a problem and this is all i think because it's kind of in a flux right of of how you get how you get people uh to to respond to your poll so i i think there's a there's a, a challenge and a problem um or you know right now but i don't think it uh, fundamentally undermines the um the usefulness of of polling data I'll let you have the last word on that. Um, we have a few more topics that we wanted to get to. One of them is, can Facebook survive their pervasive evilness and Mr. Evil personified Mark Zuckerberg? Well, I think I think that was ad hominem, Bob. I don't know if... Uh... I think that was a little over the top, but um, uh, evil, um, I don't know. But I think, um, you know, one of the things we have seen with this this new information that's come out about Facebook is that um, for that what how they um, connect with you, the user, and how they deliver things that you would like to see is by looking at things that you've done before. And so, um, you know, that, that constantly hits you with the same thing over and over again. So you're, you're just reifying what you already believe, and so you're not exposed to, to different things. And that, um, that's a problem for our uh, political thinking. Also, you, we know that um, they, you know, negative stories are pushed harder uh, because they're more effective at keeping people on their computer and looking at the screen and thus looking at advertising and say Facebook knows this as well but um, you know and their internal research tells them this is the case but Zuckerberg's reaction is um, do I am I worried about society or am I worried about Facebook's profits and I think it always you know weighs uh, he always comes down on uh, on Facebook profits and that's understandable in some way but um, they have to recognize the big impact and the extremely negative impact that social media is having on our ability to connect with each other as citizens uh, in a productive way, at least in terms of in terms of politically. So it's causing uh, it may not be causing the polarization, but it certainly is making it worse and it's um, increasing it. And so, um, it, you know, social Mark Zuckerberg is an irresponsible actor. You know, if you look at it from that perspective, and so I think we have to. Um, you know, there's, it's right that Congress is calling these guys, um, you know, on the carpet and saying, hey, what's going on here? And we need to ask, you know, these questions a lot more and find out, you know, more about what's happening in Facebook and elsewhere. Uh, one, one, one more example that's not just about politics, it's, you know, about, um, uh, young people, like if uh, Instagram, there's this, um, you know, young women or teens or girls, they look at Instagram and they, you know, it makes them feel, uh, some of them, more negative about their own body and all this kind of stuff. And we know that the more people, more that teens use social media, the more likely they are to be depressed and have <laughs> suicidal uh, thoughts and so forth. And so this is a big challenge for, for society and uh, for Facebook and others need to be responsible on this. And um, but there's a, you know, they're incentivized the other direction, obviously, because profit is what they're about. And this is, a, this is something that, you know, really has to be addressed in a, in a significant way. What can be done, I, I don't know, uh, but, it's, but it needs to, and it is a big topic, but it needs to really be a focus for government policy to the extent that government policy could do anything about it. I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but potentially it could. Well, they could break up the company. Uh, 
right now the justice the justice department is looking at combinations of companies and they're not going to be as laissez-faire as the previous administration was with companies joining together if there is an implied monopoly rather than an actual monopoly i think they're going to look a little bit harder uh, but whether uh, facebook will remain intact and whether Mark Zuckerberg will be at the head of, well, the new name now is Meta. They're changing from Facebook. Change the name and hide the, the company, maybe. That's what their thought is. But uh, I, I just assume we moved on. Uh, so um, just to reiterate, I helped elect four Republican presidents. Uh, but obviously, uh, I'm not alone in this. Uh, I couldn't vote for a Republican for president today, and especially uh, because the party has changed so much. Uh, there was a time when, as I said before, uh, Republicans were uh, the, the party uh, of mother and apple pie and uh, thinking about the country first. But today, I see it as uh, the... The Republican Party is electing office holders who are liars, thieves, and cheats. And they should change their name, maybe, to the Lawless Party. Well, that's my little rant, and I don't know if you want to get into that or just let that ride, but I'll take it either way. Well, um, let me say a couple things real quickly about that. And I, I mean, I share um, your uh, your feeling about uh, the modern Republican Party. I've um, never been a Republican personally, but uh, you know, it seems like the there when I was younger, um, there were reasonable disagreements between the two parties, and there was at least some attempt to make some compromise um, and for to to you know. To participate responsibly, and that's not the the case really today. I mean, we could we could look at the future of the Republican Party. Um, we could we could see how it's playing out with the, the current legislation. But you can look at it a couple of different ways, right? First, the Republicans um, can recover even if they're committed to Trump, right? Because they have these huge built-in advantages in the system, right? The Electoral College, the Senate, big big advantages for. Um, for Republicans, they also have this, you know, control of a number of states where they redistricted. You know, hardly any House races are competitive anymore. Anyway, you get the idea. But and the other one um, is that um, you know the party that they're they're circling the drain, right? And you know they're losing their base of voters. Uh, they're you know white rural voters. Their policies aren't that particularly possible um, or, that, or that popular. So um, you know it could, it could end up that way. But um, so I think there's two possible ways it can turn out. I don't know. But I think if you if you look at um, the way legislation happens when Repu when Democrats are in charge, you get a sense of the kind of irresponsible behavior. Like right now, I mean, in this new bill, the reconciliation bill, you have public you have Democrats vote, um, you know uh, negotiating against themselves. Right, uh, demonstrating that uh, their ability to govern the party is limited, much less their ability to govern the country. Right, and you have uh, the Republicans uh, on the side. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, he must be loving this, right? He can just sit back and do nothing and watch the Democrats fight it out, uh, and then um, you know, then he can they can all they can all vote against it, which I'm certain that they will, and then they can go back to their districts at home and uh, talk about all the money that uh, you know, then take advantage of all that money that's coming. Back back to their district um hey it's a good it's a good strategy but you know uh at, at some point you have to 
uh, make a commitment to democracy, and democracy involves compromise and responsible behavior. And um, I don't know if it's because these Republicans feel like they're uh, their existence is threatened, right? Or that they just have a different way of understanding how politics works. Uh, and but but fundamentally, this is uh, it's breaking our our political institutions and our system. And um, something needs to happen. And I guess Christy Todd Whitman sees that as well. And um, you know has, has at least some ideas about how to how to address that. Well, <clears throat> I wonder. Uh, we haven't heard from Eric Holder with all of the redistricting going on throughout the country. And didn't he create um, an organization to go after uh, extreme partisan gerrymandering around the country? Uh, but I haven't heard a word about whatever he might be doing. And there are some cases, take Texas as a for instance. Texas was assigned two new congressional districts due to the increase in their population. But m almost all of that or all of that increase was in minority groups, people of color, because the white population was reduced. But yet none of the new, not the two new districts, and nor were any of the others given to any minority uh, uh, population. There's got to be something wrong sure. with that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, but you know, this is what happens when um, your party controls the state legislature and you have the ability to redistrict uh to to re, you know, to draw district boundaries. Um you want to draw them in ways that um, you know, you that can guarantee a certain number of seats for your party and you know, a limited number for the other obviously. And so, um, you know, and this is is it fair? Well, um, I mean, I guess cuz both both sides could do it, but is it responsible, um, Democrat, uh, you know, policy making in a, in a democracy? Um, no, but I mean, you just take those um, minority communities and you crack them apart, right? And uh, and you know, divide them up in small small amounts into a number of districts, or you pack them all into one district. And sometimes that works better, you know, to to limit the number of seats the opposition has the ability to to get. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think it's. I think it's terrible. I think uh, a lot of states have done the right thing. They've gone to citizen redistricting commissions. California has done that. But it's mostly uh, Democratic states that have done that, and so it's not dealing with um, you know the the real um, you know what, what most people would consider the uh, the most partisan kinds of uh, gerrymandering. So I you know I don't see um, I, and I don't see that changing. And that's what I'm saying uh, partly, Bob, is because it. You know, people tend to not think about this, but uh, controlling a state legislature and a state um, executive is really important to you know the effect or to the um, uh, to how well your political party does at the national level. And uh, Democrats have been very poor at um, you know making or Dem Republicans have been quite good at you know taking over state uh, institutions, and Democrats haven't really understood how important that is and you know all these are big big uh, concerns that um, you know would impact the you know whatever the whatever the outcome is on these these kinds of uh, you know shifts uh, based on the census so the constitution says that states can pick the time and place uh, for uh, elections but what it also says is that regarding congressional districts the federal government the congress can have a lot more say than they've been given lately. Now, that brings us to another problem. So if something were to be brought up to the Supreme Court, uh, 
we have six people who have been put in and are mm, extremely conservative and uh, certainly they were Republicans some of them pushed forward by the Federalist Society so whether the Constitution says one thing or another these six people seem to interpret things their own way rather than originalists or structuralists or whatever they want to call themselves uh, in fact uh, two or three of them have gone out and spoken publicly and said we're not political hacks well I I'm reminded of uh, Shakespeare methinks thou doth protest too much well I mean the yeah, I mean, you know, the, when you have um, the Republicans are going to appoint uh, nominees who have a conservative philosophy, um, and you know, vice versa for the Democrats. But you know, the issue here is that um, you know, really, the there's not a consistent political philosophy here for for these uh, at least five of them of the six you're talking about. It's just really about partisan uh, politics, and you can't really you know take that um, cleave that away from from supreme court decision making but it's pretty clear that um, you know the, these these um, six or at least five of the six maybe maybe uh, our chief justice is a, a little a little less uh, extreme um, you know they're they're there to um, they would like to see a fundamental change in the relationship the power of the federal government and in our individual liberties and all sorts of different things and they're more than willing to to use the supreme court to do it and when you have to go out and say hey i'm not a political hack well that <laughs> that suggests that uh, there's a big perception that you're a political hack and um, you know that that's a bad thing and maybe it's true um, you know and for the supreme court that's a very bad thing and, and unfortunate but but let's not let's not kid ourselves, Bob. I mean, the Supreme Court has been stacked with um, people with political affiliations since the beginning, and has even been you know the size of it's been increased when necessary, and, and all kinds of stuff. So it's a political um, you know it's a political football as much as it is a judicial um, entity. So you're gonna you're gonna have this kind of thing, um, but. Um, you know, they've already, take gerrymandering, for example, they've already taken apart parts of the 14th Amendment, um, and so this goes along with the, when you add this to what's happening with Republicans at the state level, well, it fits nicely together, so you do have to wonder, is there some broader strategy here that involves the Supreme Court? And that's a, that's a dangerous thing. I well, think. it's also dangerous because that's not the way the country is going. This used to be considered a center-right uh, country. Most people thought more conservatively uh, as a as a majority than the minority did, but that's changing, uh, mainly because our non-white population is growing fast and our white population is uh, dying fast. So uh, it's different. Younger people think differently, and there's a, a greater young population. I remember uh, kids uh, when I was growing up, you talked uh, epithets, you threw at people who were a little bit different. Uh, today, kids are growing up, uh, LGBT, uh, people of color, uh, there is no thought to those things it, amongst younger people, especially in urban areas today. So the country is going in a different direction than the Supreme Court wants to take us. 
Well, I think you're right, and if you look at the difference in attitudes and behavior of young people and older people, you're exactly right in terms of the trend. Uh, the, the problem, Bob, is that um, if you uh, the Republicans have a huge advantage in the Senate, and if you can never control the Senate, well, you can never control Supreme Court appointments. And right now, given the 6-3 to three majority that the conservatives have on the court, they're going to control constitutional interpretation for at least a couple of decades um, and uh, so you'll have these two things that are, um, you know, moving in opposite directions uh, from one another. And uh, I think this is another reason why you might see some potential political violence, right? I mean, the Republicans, this, this core Republican group feels like they're being, um, you know, their existence is threatened, right, in a lot of ways. And so they're lashing out about that. And... Um, uh, so it may just be a matter of time uh, before, you know, some with some of these, um, you know, with a change in the system as people, you know, enter the system and leave the system. And that could create some fundamental change. But I think is what you have right now in the system that's been created, uh, the dynamics that are here at the moment, um, you're going to have um, a lot of conservative policy wins and conservative orientation of the government, irrespective of the change in the public for at least a couple decades. So, uh, you know, I think that... Um, the impact of that's going to be limited. And one of the interesting things, and you mentioned about the uh, uh, the advantages that Republicans have, the structural advantages between gerrymandering and the Senate. In the Senate, there are 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans. The Democrats, in their 50, represent 40 million more people than the Republicans do. And yes, yet they have an equal number of votes. And that's because of the two senators per state, regardless of how large and small. California has almost 40 million people, two senators. I think it's Wyoming, uh, two senators, and maybe, what, three or or fewer million people? Uh, These are big problems. Now, let me just point out. Oh, yeah. We have about... Uh, three and a half minutes to go, and uh, there are a couple of things I wanted to mention. And since polling and media uh, are allied, uh, I want to talk about what's wrong with the media. Uh, we see large organizations, including the New York Times, creating controversies where there are none, or none or poor explanations about what's going on with the bills. Today, I saw a much better representation, but it took all this time. Uh, And they're calling in various places, Biden is a lame duck president. Well, the bills haven't passed yet. Why don't we wait to see if they pass and what is in them before we make uh, a determination as whether Biden is doing well or not. And Next week, which is the first Friday of the month, I have a guest who's going to talk about the little bit of persuasion uh, presidents of the United States actually have. They don't persuade the public very well, and they don't persuade Congress very well. And that's something we ought to think about when we blame or, uh, or praise a particular president for doing such a great job. Uh, they actually have less to do with it than most people think. So, Phil... Uh, in the next two minutes, you have the floor. Okay. Well, I mean, I think uh, just to uh, talk quickly about the the media. You know, um, they they want to have a story. So if there's not a good one, they have to gen one up, right? And they like to they like to talk about who's up, who's down. You know, who's who's 
moving, um, who's not, what's what's positive, what's negative, all that. They have to, you know, they they want to create conflict, controversy, something that gets you know eyeballs on the on the page or the screen. A negative story is always better than a good one, right? So, uh, in terms of getting people um, locked in, um, so. You know, but in, but in fact, Biden's approval is slipping now. Is it because the media is going negative? You know, getting less uh, happy about him, or is it because, or is the media doing that because of the public? Well, sometimes we we don't know. Um, but you know, the the issue of whether Biden is uh, his poll numbers are going down is a legitimate issue. Um, the one thing I uh, did want to talk about today that we really didn't get to, which is surprising, is the the. Uh, the the infrastructure bill and the uh, the reconciliation bill in terms of uh, what's in them, and um, you know, uh, so so I think that you know, I'm part of the I guess why I bring this up is because you know the um, the amount of dollars that are supposed to be uh, spent on the building back better bill has been cut sort of in half. You know, you're not uh, the progressives, particularly in the House. We talked about earlier; they're very unhappy about um, no paid family leave. Um, there's no Medicare expansion, right, to, for health and vision. There's, um, you know, no billionaire tax. Um, the prescription drug cap is not going to happen. So there's a lot of things that are very, very popular uh, that are not going to happen in this legislation. And so, and this is happening even without Republicans having to do anything, like I was saying before. So it's really, um, you know, there's going to be some good stuff that comes out of the bill, right? You know, the universal pre-K and child tax credits and stuff like that. But um, in terms of something with really you know, big punch uh, like the paid family leave and the prescription drug cap, that's not going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, you know, Biden's right. It's about compromise. It's about um, getting what you can get. The The problem is they're not compromising with the Republicans. They're compromising with themselves. And mm-hmm. and that's really a strange and unfortunate place to be in. And I think this, uh, you know, this legislation is a really good example of, you know, the kind of, uh, the kind of trouble Democrats have in governing and the, the the, the good position that the Republicans are in, uh, okay. you know, by simply doing nothing. Okay, we got to go. Phil Worf, a political science professor at Mendocino College. He's been my guest today. I thank you very much, Phil. Uh, next up is Gordon Black and the Wondrous World. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.